The financial services game is changing, and banking as a service is leading that charge. We've interviewed some of the industry's biggest changemakers in our brand new six-part documentary video series, Decoding Banking as a Service. Jump inside the minds of the very best and find out why BAS is so hot right now and how your business can reap the benefits. To watch the current episodes and get instant updates when the new ones are released, head over to http colon backslash backslash bit.ly bit.ly forward slash decoding bass. That's decoding bass. Okay, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. My name is David Breer and today we're going to be talking about the path to profitability. The path to profitability for many fintechs has not been an easy one, much like disruptive technology and media companies. For the vast majority of the challenger banks, their number one objective has been growth and building a loyal customer base rather than prioritizing on short-term profit making. However, as the UK plunges into the deepest recession on record, challenger banks are under renewed pressure, both from inside and outside the industry, to start making a profit. In today's show, we're going to be exploring the reasons why profit has evaded some of the banks, why it's such a hot topic in the media right now, uh, and the why really the goal is even necessary at this stage in the evolution of, of where the banks really are. To dig into this topic today, I'm joined by some fantastic guests. Joining me, we have returning to the show, Liliana Brinden, who is the head of Yahoo Finance. How's it going? Hi, good, thanks. I was, uh, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to say this. I know it's audio, but I've just been admiring <laughs> all the plants in your, your flat. It's pretty impressive, I have to say, but uh, it's going to be meaningless on a podcast, but you guys, you'll have to, we'll describe them at some point. You'll have to join <laughs> in on that. Um, next up, we have Alexandra Fien, who is the head of corporate affairs at Starling. How's it going? Uh, really good. Nice to see you. Nice to see you again, Liana. Last time I saw you was in lockdown one on this yeah. very same podcast. Talk about um, marketing. Um, I mean, we're, we're, we're going to do this every episode, every lockdown. We'll just get everybody back together again for an hour. I think it's uh, it's it's only good. Uh, and and last but by no means least, we have Adam Davies, who is the head of delivery here at Eleven FS. How's it going, Adam? I'm very well, David. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, lockdown two, you know, like uh, here we here we go again. Uh, I mean, to be honest with you, after after lockdown one and like living a reasonably remote life, then uh, it feels like not much changing really. Like at least this time, the kids are at school, so I'm getting a bit of peace and quiet, which is good. But uh, anyway, we probably want to get on with the show, don't we? So today we're going to be talking about the road to profitability. So let's start by really beginning of the road, I guess. Um, why is profitability so low for the digital banks? And, and I guess there's a real, I mean, I, I saw somebody uh, earlier on describe um, Metro Bank as a challenger bank, which uh, I, I sort of found quite a, an interesting sort of very broad definition. But I think when we're talking about digital banks, we're sort of referring to the more sort of new, uh, you know, since 2008 kind of established organizations, really. But I mean, what do we think it's... Um, why is profitability so low in where we are? I mean, Liliana, do you, is this a is this a a real problem, or is this just a point in the cycle where we're at? Well, I think it's when you really you know drill back down to basics, right? About like what is a digital bank? It's all to do with technology, and that requires a huge amount of investment. And then you couple that with digital banks being challenges, challenging the incumbent banks that have millions upon millions of customers that may be unhappy with their banks, but that 
they can't be bothered to move their accounts. You know, it's it's trying to penetrate a very, um, you know, traditional market, but at the same time having to plow in virtually all your capital just to be able to have something that's a bit different and taking away that market share. So profitability naturally for a digital bank shouldn't really ever for a, you know, in the short term frame, um, be seen as profitable because there's so many things that that digital bank has to do to remotely even break even, let alone be profitable. Mm. Yeah, the I mean, the establishment of an organisation in this day and age with all of the regulatory burdens and everything that is required of it is a, is a really, really big one. But I guess to stick with that point in cycle, I mean, Adam, are we are we at a point now where we should be expecting the newer banks coming through to be profitable, or or is it uh, uh, is it too early in that cycle to to kind of get to that point? Uh, I, th- I think profitable maybe is uh, is is quite ambitious. I think breaking even and slightly profitable uh, or marginally profitable maybe is is probably more apt. I think, uh, and Alex, you can probably testify to this in a sec. But uh, I think Starling was looking to break even what this year six years or so in. I think. Uh, pre-COVID, Monzo, Revolut, who I know strictly aren't a bank here, but uh, we're also talking about breaking even around this point. So you're talking about six, seven-ish years in. Um, COVID's probably done, uh, hasn't helped that. Um, but I think, you know, put put that anomaly aside um, and, you know, you're looking at kind of a, a six, seven-year time window, which um, is, is, not, is not that bad. You know, a seven-year cycle, eight-year cycle is kind of what was expected by tech companies anyway to start posting that kind of revenue. So it's not um, a world away from what you would expect, I guess, from from tech players uh, in other industries and other silos. I think the difference with banks is that because of just how important they are and how regulated they are and just the consequence of one a bank going under and what that has on its customer base, as we've seen, you know, time and time again, and especially in 2008. So the, you know, I guess the focus on it is, is just that much more magnified. Mm. I mean, it's an interesting point. Uh, the, obviously, you know, there's, there are many um, big tech organizations who have been seen to be, you know, successful way before profit was any ever really coming. I guess within the technology industry, very often we're talking about a new vertical or something, you know, emerging that's very different. Like the challenger banks have got to wrestle away 300 years of stranglehold from a, a you know big incumbent organizations mind share from a customer's perspective and then you know really i, I think there's a um an evolution of the business models potentially that sort of comes with it as well alex i feel like you're going to get loads of pointed questions here so uh, <laughs> like take, take take these all if i could just jump in here i mean i think uh just to the points that have already been raised you know the apps we launched the Starling app in 2017. So the, the company was formed in 2014, but we've only been in the market for three and a half years. So um, Monzo too. So same sort of time frame. So I think, you know, it's it's shorter than, it, than you made it sound. Um, there was a lot of upfront investment, but the massive advantage that we have over the incumbents, we are, you know, up against a, a 300 plus year old industry, We've got a much, 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 much lower cost base than them. So we should be able to make profits quicker um, than than one of them, than Metro, for example, which has got this massive burden of their branch network. Um, we, don't, we don't have those costs. So... Um, so those are factors in there. And we, you know, we will, we will break even before the end of the year or by the end of the year. And... 
from then on, we hope we will be profitable. Um, I actually think the pandemic has helped, not hindered. It, it will take a, it will it will knock the economy and it will knock people's confidence, but it is accelerating the shift to digital, and uh, not perhaps as fast as we would like it to, but I think that will be a very lasting effect of it. You know, you can't go to a branch or it's difficult to go to a branch. Yeah, I think it's it's very much um, laid bare the inadequacies in uh, the existing systems, isn't there? You know, the uh, trundle into a branch and fill out a form just doesn't really work out very well when you can't leave your house, does it? So, uh, you know, actually being in a situation where, you know, the, the fragility in those existing systems are really sort of exposed. So, but, but, but why are we talking about this then? Like why there seems to be such a pressure uh, right now, particularly in the media, you know, I mean, um, it feels like a, a growing sense of um, needing to measure the the digital banks against the incumbent banks in order to to sort of have that how well are they doing how well are you doing Alex so I mean are, are you guys sort of feeling this a little bit more internally or are you just you know getting on with your work and moving forward no we're we're absolutely fine with it you know we, we've we already always had a path to profitability mapped out you know we we gave our target of breaking even by the end of twenty twenty in the middle of last summer, I mean, summer 2019. So, um, and we, we've stuck with that. I think that the pressure has come from the PRA, which published a consultation document in the summer, uh, talking about this very question and raising some very good points. And what the PRA said in that consultation document is, we expect the uh, the new banks to be on uh, either profitable or on a path to profitability within five years, um, which seemed... Um, a very reasonable thing to do. And what that consultation paper did was remind everyone that the banks are different. This isn't just a pure tech play. We are a highly regulated industry. People trust us with their money. Um, there are very systemic, as Adam said, there are very systemic implications if a bank goes under. And the couple of things said in, in that a consultation document. One is that um, you know they really want the the new banks to show they can be sustainable, so that they can um, uh, weather any um, stress, any severe. Um, I think that I love I love this wording severe but plausible stress. Um, uh, and also, the other thing about banks is. Um, they should contribute to the medium and long-term growth of the economy, according to this PRA paper. Um, and to do that, you have to be stable. You have to be sustainable. Um, you have to be um, contribution positive because how can you foster growth unless you are on a, on a very firm footing like that? So I think it's the PRA that sort of sparked this conversation, but we welcome it because um, – this is a regulated industry. People hand their money over to us and it could not be more important. Our responsibilities to our customers could not be um, more important. Mm, no, I agree. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we, you know, roll back to 2008 and the competition opportunities and opening up the market and giving greater access. Um, but it does feel like a little bit of a, I, I don't think it's a necessarily a, a, a tightening of it. But it's it's showing people that I mean 
this is a serious thing. Being a bank is a very serious uh, endeavor to, to to sort of move down. And, and to your point, the responsibilities that that has both from an individual perspective, but from a more broad economic perspective is is pretty significant. So, I mean, what why the timing, do you think, in terms of the, uh, I mean, Diana, the timing around the PRA's pieces, I mean, seems to coincide uh, with much more of a media attention to profitability and, and uh, you know, and the sort of positioning of that. Because I, I, I feel personally, having read lots of the headlines, it feels it feels like there's quite a, a sort of a turn, more of a sort of a negative turn towards the the digital banks in terms of their positioning or, you know, that I mean, I, I've spoken to many senior banker over the last uh, since 2008 uh, over the over the years um, of look, well, you know, they'll never get customers, they'll never, you know, and the latest one of those is they'll never turn profit type thing. So is this the the sort of reaction to um, inevitably be, you know, the, the digital banks being big enough to take the abuse now? Or is this a sign of something else? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting you say that um, it, it still feels like the tides have turned, because I feel like it's actually been a while that people have been putting that in headlines. I would just say that, it's a very normal thing when you look at any company, uh, whether something's turning a profit or not. And this is where it gets a bit interesting when it comes to fintechs and when it comes to digital banks, because it's always like, we are a tech company, but we do banking. So the thing is, when it comes to um, tech companies, there's very, when you think of just tech companies, there's that kind of I suppose, uh, you know, focus that usually happens within the industry of move fast, break things, move on, do something else, doesn't matter if it loses money, go and find something new. But the issue is just like pointed out and Alex is that like when it comes to banking, it is tied in the economic system. This is people's money. Um, This is, um, you know, has a real responsibility to the customers in a way that just non-banking tech companies do and so when it comes to a crisis and when it comes to especially now with the pandemic and we're in a recession and things like that is that the focus does start turning to okay we're in a crisis what's happening to my money is it safe here is this going to oh no I've put I've decided to take my chances and move elsewhere. But what if tomorrow they don't exist? That's just a very 101 consumer concern. And especially when there's so many people losing their jobs and when the economy's in the toilet and thinking of what it is, it it does make people want to have a look at what the profits are. But at the same time as well, there is a, I think there's a mixture of understanding. And as Alex pointed out, Actually, what are the timeframes? So when we think, oh, Starling, Monzo, actually, they've been around for ages, actually been on the market for actually a very small amount of time. Um, But because there's been so many talk over the years in the press and with interviews and with analysis about we're going to take the bank's lunch kind of thing. (laughs) Now everyone's like, okay, so where then profits at? Um, Because that's the usual reaction when it comes to that. And I do think that it's just a very normal part of the cycle and obviously that's compounded when all eyes are turning on how are the banks regardless of whether you're a digital one or an incumbent bank how are you faring through a crisis Mm. yeah i think that's interesting i mean can i I ask can i ask a question can i ask you david and adam i'd be interested in your view do you do you think that the, some of this pressure may have come from, well, this is the natural VC cycle. They put their money in, they expect some kind of return, you know, three years, five years. That's when they would expect to see some 
something coming back. Um, it, it doesn't really apply to Starling because we don't have VC investors, but I'm just interested if you think that, that, it's, that that's just part of the timetable of being a, a company that VCs have invested in. I, th- I think that's had an influence because I think if you look at, uh, I mean, the FCA and the PR, I mean, they, they've actually released some really interesting papers recently. There's been this one, there's been one about uh, digital currencies, open finance. They're, they're, uh, they're addressing the fintech sort of roll call of interesting topics sort of one by one. And, and I think this is, um, there's a couple of reasons. I think that's one of them um, because they're obviously looking at these companies potentially IPOing potentially in, you know, let's say three, five years from now. Um and that obviously will bring in itself, you know, an ability for, you know, your regular Joes, if you like, to invest in these companies. Um, and there's probably a long term thought from certainly the FCA to think, well, actually, is it reasonable and responsible for these companies to IPO, you know, in the current state that they are, given that they are banks? And I think there is probably um, sort of a VC investment, uh, I guess, uh, influence on it. I also think that... Um, fintech at the moment i mean we've seen you know in the sunday times obviously Bowden's uh book's been in there it, it's quite sexy at the moment uh people are interested in it which is great also market shares of these companies are up uh you know so you're talking you know millions of customers now being owned by you know monzo by starling by revolut uh and i think the pra are probably looking at thinking well actually uh you know we sort of need to give guidance because we can't keep dishing out licenses, if you like, from a public perception perspective uh, to companies that aren't going to turn a quick profit. But actually, if we've deemed to have, you know, given our, uh, you know, pined on the industry and said, actually, you know, officially five years, six years, 10 years is a decent timeline, then actually they've got sort of a room to maneuver in terms of issuing new licenses, if that's the route that people want to want to take in future. Um, so I think it's almost sort of setting the, setting the stall out. But I, I take your point. I think there is definitely an angle on it which is there could be ipos and mnas and whatever in the future in the near future um and therefore you know what's the consequence of that on you know regular joe investor therefore let's issue some guidance around it to make sure that everyone knows i guess what the score is i do think that there's some really good points there on the regulatory point of view because you know the last time we were seeing a recession or crisis of this was back in um back in obviously 2008 and then recovery in 2009. And one of the biggest things was always about regulators being asleep at the wheel. What do they do? And so, you know, in terms of being able to also show that they have been really just about, you know, like you're saying, Adam, about the, um, you know, dishing out licenses, they have to start genuinely thinking and putting structures in place on how those licenses have been granted. If there is a huge crisis where, yeah, if, you know, and it's tied into the financial system, that thing go uh, things go under. It wasn't like this over, you know, oversight, undersight of, um, you know, what went wrong. So putting those things in place wouldn't, it isn't that surprising to me from a regulatory point of view at all. It, it just makes sense, especially when an industry like this is new, new for the incumbents and new for the industry to be able to tackle it just as much as they try to tackle crypto or how they try to tackle all these other things. They need to be able to um, put something in place, which I do think will evolve over time. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I, I haven't heard this being uh, this consultation paper being as a direct uh a direct uh, consequence of, let's say, the FCA being under pressure by VCs to issue guidance on it. I think that's that's. Um, so no, when, I did, that's I, not what I meant. All right, okay, sorry. No, yeah, cool. no, 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 no. I, I think no. I think more more broadly from an industry perspective, I think the pressure for bank uh, for the digital banks to to turn profit 
uh, I have seen sort of evidence that that does come from a VC perspective. I think people are becoming a little bit more um, focused at the back end of these cycles to ensure that actually larger and larger raises are being um, done on the basis of green shoots from a, a, you know, definitely from a revenue perspective, but ideally from a, you know, as you say, path to profitability, right? Um, I think it, it, it is interesting as well. I think the the challenge, and we'll sort of unpack this a little bit later in the show, but the challenge of actually challenger banks coming and being something different, um, you know, fundamentally, you know, from 2008, in fact, from way earlier than this, and, you know, Anne or uh, Nikolai or, or Tom would, would sort of talk about these things. But, uh, you know, banking isn't just broken because of technology, it's broken because of business models. And it's bizarre often how the new thing has to look like the old thing for a period of time to get through a cycle in order to really become, I think there's some sort of butterfly metaphor there that I'm going for, but I'm not really sure, <laughs> sure, sure I'm landing it. But they really have to go through a process to get to the point where they can really be the thing that they want to be. Um, and not just from a, a, a revenue model perspective, but from a consumer's perspective as well. You know, my mum really understanding what a bank is you know, the new ones have to look a bit like the old ones to get her to get involved in it to then really be what they want to be. But uh, um, I think at this point, we're probably going to have to take a break and we will unpack that a little bit more in the second half of the show, though. This episode is sponsored by Pento, the UK's first automated payroll platform. Say goodbye to clumsy spreadsheets, endless emails, and external payroll providers and manual payments. Pento lets you run payroll in just a few clicks. It calculates taxes, integrates with platforms like Xero, and makes all your payments and reports to HMRC and pension providers for you automatically. Go to pento.io forward slash insider to run payroll for free for the rest of the year. That's pento.io forward slash insider. This episode is also brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on first name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal human centered services that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based core connected tools to offer service at the moment that it's actually needed. To learn more and explore what the team's insights are, head over to jackhenrydigital.com. We love making podcasts at 11FS, and well, this isn't our only one. If you haven't checked out our sister podcast, InsureTech Insider, then you're really missing out on something because we've published some of our best ever episodes over the last few months. From the future of work to the biggest industry InsureTech news, there is a topic in there for anyone who wants to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Head over to ii.11fs.com, that's ii.11fs.com, to start listening or just search InsureTech Insider on whatever your podcast provider is. Okay, and back on with the show. Um, so, I mean, Adam, do you, do you think that sort of vein of, of direction I was sort of going in there sort of makes sense? Is this a... Is this the challenger banks looking and acting and sort of feeling a little bit more from a revenue model perspective like the the incumbents? Is that similarly really just the point in the cycle where we're at before they can really sort of move on to, to bigger and better things? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at, um, I think the interesting thing is if you drive down to the numbers and the economics and unit economics behind both challengers and incumbents, you're actually starting to see uh, some similarities in terms of how revenue is generated and where costs are, but completely different levels. So, you know, if you look at um, some of the, the, the challenges, 
the predominant way they're making money is via interchange and via interest, so near net interest margin. There's nothing necessarily innovative around that, uh, and it might make up you know 60-70% of uh, their total revenues, which is pretty much what you would expect to see from an incumbent, and the incumbent is around 60-75%. to 75%, um, coming derived specifically from, again, interchange and net interest margin. The interesting thing is, um, and Alex, you touched on it earlier, is that is that cost to serve point. You know, you're talking about um, a customer costing a startup maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 pounds per customer, whereas in an incumbent, you're talking about 150 pounds. So the inherent advantage is right there. And really what you're looking at now is a drive towards how can you turn, I suppose, uh, that model into generating additional revenues, because it's really now about upping the revenues without necessarily upping the cost base. And the way to do that is via, again, and I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on this, um, is by taking a little bit of what the incumbents do, especially the profitable parts of what the incumbents do, which is namely loans and doing something clever with the deposits, which now the you know challenger banks have got quite a lot of uh, in comparison to loans, but also looking at different avenues to generate revenues. And if you look at uh, Revolut, you know, a strong part of their business, 30% or so, is now from subscription-based uh, revenue off the back of their, I'm not going to say, well, I'm going to say packaged, I shouldn't say packaged, but packaged current accounts. Um, and that's really interesting. Um, that's something that I, you know, um, as much as uh, the incumbents have got your sort of your premium tiers and, your, you know, your sort of your, your wealth players and all this sort of stuff and they charge for those accounts, it hasn't been socially accepted, uh, sort of, a, a, again, a, a paid for account as it, as it has been recently because uh, the startups have come and, and sort of brought, brought that to the fore. And I'm really interested to see that kind of revenue grow because it's it's great revenue because it's obviously consistent and it's month by month, et cetera. So I think there are elements that they've picked, especially from a product perspective from the incumbents. Um, the revenue obviously isn't there yet, but the cost to serve is so low that if they can crack that, which is generally by moving into different silos, then you know the opportunity is 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 genuinely endless. Mm. And, and what do you think in terms of the impact that, I mean, obviously, when we've sort of been talking at the top end of the show in terms of the media presence, I don't really worry so much in terms of the sort of shift in narrative from a media perspective for, I think, people within banking, people within fintech have more of a good grasp of the principles of banking and actually where the world is. But do you think, um, and Adam, maybe starting with you and then uh, Alex after this one, but do you think the focus and the shift from a media perspective could potentially damage damage that opportunity because i mean i guess this uh, the first time i was most concerned about this was the i'm not sure if you i mean you must have saw the panorama thing with with monzo i don't know nine months ago and it was such sensationalist mainstream craziness that actually the things that were being portrayed for anybody who knows anything around how those processes worked were just not right really but that doesn't mean them not impactful to the millions of people that will have been watching that show yeah um so you know, does this have a potential to potential, a potential to potentially look at that uh, to to sort of stunt growth really in a market that really has been one of the the biggest growth sectors for for the UK for a long time? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that I live in somewhat of a fintech bubble. Everyone that I follow on Twitter and uh, people on LinkedIn or whatever else generally revolve around fintech. So I see more news than your again your average Joe who doesn't. So I'm hoping that I sort of see everything and that you know that there's only a very small subsection that makes it into the mainstream, um, which, which would hopefully dampen that down. The pa- the panorama uh, program obviously is, is is an anomaly to that. Um, I, I think there's a uh, 
I wouldn't necessarily say that all the press that they receive is negative. Again, I think, you know, a lot of the things that have come out, for instance, in the Sunday Times recently, um, although it's, you know, Bonzo Starling and the backgrounds, all this sort of stuff, people like reading that uh, and people will actually probably check out the products off the back of it. So I don't even necessarily think that that's negative. I actually think that kind of publicity is, you know, from a customer acquisition perspective, could could actually do the opposite and be quite positive. Um, but I would say that, you know, this comes from, you know, quite traditional, traditional media, I mean, I'm not going to get into sort of conspiracy theories or any of that, but, you know, it is traditional media talking about something that they probably don't understand the end, the ends of the earth and the ends of the degrees of. Therefore, the obvious and easiest position to take is somewhat sceptical, which means that, you know, anything they don't understand, you can potentially throw things at. But again, you know, I think you wouldn't be hearing these stories and you wouldn't be, uh, these stories wouldn't be making the broadsheets or, you know, Panorama or any of that if, if they weren't based on companies that were actually quite successful at the moment and nothing's derailed them so far. And so I can only see, you know, just like share prices when they take a dip, you know, you can, you know, it is a slight dip, but if you look at the correlation over time of, you know, Monzo and Starling and you look at the customer acquisition numbers, they're only going one way. So, you know, maybe small corrections, but I think the trend will continue. Hmm. What what do you think, Alex? Do you think, um, I mean, the, the, the old sort of idea of sort of, uh, you know, all press is good press type vibe, uh, do you, do you sort of worry a little bit about the the sort of shift in approach from more traditional media when it comes to the narrative around challenger banks? No, I don't. Um, I mean, I spent my career working in the traditional media, and um, so of course I'm going to defend it, aren't I? But uh, what, you know, we should be. It's a coming of age. We should be robust enough and strong enough to withstand. Um, uh, this 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 sort of coverage it's not ideal and you know that panorama program you mentioned that was uh, I didn't think it was very fair actually um, uh, we've had coverage uh, of Starling that I you know apart from being inaccurate it just wasn't fair but you know we, we've had it as a sector we've had it really good for a really long time we've got uh, we've got the kind of positive publicity that um, the big banks can't even dream of. So um, I don't think we should turn around and start complaining that the media is no longer um, sort of treating us like the shiny new things because we're not the shiny new things. It's tall poppy syndrome. You know, as soon as you reach a certain height, people are going to start, you know, taking a, a shot at you. And it, it's really, fr- it's, it's on us to ensure that we're robust enough to withstand that kind of scrutiny. Um, I, I wish the scrutiny was sometimes a bit fairer and a bit better. Um, present company uh, excluded because we know that Yahoo Finance is always fair. Um, <laughs> but, Sp- but Sponsors it- of today's podcast, I know they're not. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we are not. Um, <laughs> but I, I'd, love, I'd love to jump in on that just because, you know, I think the key thing is the, the difference between scrutiny and criticism, Right. There are some things, like with anything, it could be anything. Some places lean one way to another and how they cover things. It depends what that leaning editorial is. Some people are a lot more neutral, like Yahoo Finance UK, please visit us. Um, (laughs) Free plug there. Um, But I think it's very normal to be scrutinised because especially like you think about, you know, you know, the way, let's say Monzo, for example, the way they want to try and get to profit is using a business model that hasn't been done before that has shown profitability, like obviously, instead of taking on loans and things like that, it could, the extra part is, you know, 
giving companies access to their users, which is a different way. And it is a different type of business model that hasn't been truly tested for profitability before. So I think it's very natural that when the media, in whatever guise, whether it's B2B or consumer, um, look at it and question like, okay, let's delve into this. But of course, as long as it's, you know, accurate and fair I don't think there's anything wrong with a bit of scrutiny and I think it's uh, good because it keeps people on their toes and also at the same time um, you know agree with Alex it's you know it's always going there's always going to be scrutiny in some way but it makes you think you know are you robust enough to withstand it and if you're not then that throws up more questions for a company doesn't it so yeah yeah so I was going to say, but Go remember on. also that a lot of the media, they don't uh, necessarily, or for the things I've read anyway, they don't necessarily go into the details in terms of why the challenger banks versus the, are in such a, mm. um, I guess, a, a harder um, position than the incumbents in terms of the ability to raise finance at, you know, yeah. sort of wholesale prices, um, you know, the, the branch bank branch network got that out um which is you know is incredibly extensive but actually serves as a good great marketing tool, especially in sort of uh, the nether regions of the uk um the legacy etc there's a lot of economic and also cultural um i suppose influences that means that you know incumbents have it uh, a lot easier at the moment than challengers and you don't really hear that all you hear is um as we've been saying you know the overwhelming uh, i suppose um not scaremongering because again it's it, i'm going too far but you know well scaremongering let's say it just for <laughs> just for for argument's sake um and i think that's a shame because i think if you actually understood you know some of the economics and whatever else that the challenges are battling with uh, you probably would feel a lot more sympathetic towards you know their plight to profitability it, it is quite a um a sort of a perverse cycle isn't it and and particularly as i think as you talked about adam with many of the organizations on course for you know, IPOs or, you know, at the point where we have shareholders involved in, not just in, you know, in uh, investors, but shareholders involved in uh, those organizations as well. Uh, it's going to be a really interesting balancing act, right? Because um, on one hand, challenges are very much set up to be, uh, you know, really the champions of the customers, the champions of the uh, of the uh, the the people in terms of people who are, you know, over uh, underserved or overcharged kind of across various different walks of life um but at the same time and this is where the the big incumbent banks sort of trip themselves up as well is that yes they want to do good for people but then they've got a bigger pressure which is to do good for their board and then an even bigger pressure to do really good for their uh their shareholders in terms of the setup around that so it, it becomes an interesting balancing act there because if customers who don't really understand financial services really want banks to be really profitable then go get into loads of debt guys like that's the sure-fired way of uh, ensuring that banking is like super profitable for a really long period of time um and this is this is the hard balancing act isn't it because um you know if if the challengers don't get into lending in a big way then actually they're not going to be able to be profitable in the same way that the incumbents have been for you know a hundred years or so uh, and this throws up a real dilemma, I think, in terms of like um, sustainability or sustainable lending and everything that sort of goes around that. So uh, it is an interesting one, Alex, because I know, again, from from talking to Anne a number of times on this, it's, you know, there's nothing quite that burns as much with with Anne as like the, 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 is- the issues of the industry that has been caused from yesteryear. And actually, 
really making sure that the business models and the way in which Starling is set up is really sustainable for for the business to be profitable, but for customers as well. Um, that is such a, a balancing act, isn't it? it? It is, but I think this is a long-term picture. So, you, you know, I, I am surprised that people are surprised that the challenger banks are making money the way banks make money. They go, oh, they're trying to make money from net interest margin and interchange. How dare they, challenger banks? You think, well, this is how banks make money. Um, what, what were you thinking? Um, this is how banks make money. You know, we, there have been uh, developments, Adam mentioned, um, uh, premium accounts or packaged accounts, um, which is, is another revenue stream. But it's, this, is a, this is what banks do. Um, and it, it, it shouldn't really be a surprise to people. And because we have got that low cost base, which is game changing, we don't have to do things such as most of the incumbent banks. If you have a declined transaction, so you make a transaction on your card, for some reason it goes through, but there is not enough money in your account to cover it. They will charge you, I know, about eight pounds for the privilege of declining your transaction. Um, it costs them a fraction of a cent to decline that transaction. It's, it, you know, it, it's minimal. They built the infrastructure years ago, um, and yet they're still doing all those hidden charges because they've got this massive cost base to cover. Um, that's, that's where the changes happen is, is that we, we don't have to do all those hidden charges or that, you know, rubbish cross-selling that, that, they do upselling you to stuff you don't need. Um, the challengers don't need to do that because we are very lean. Hmm. I think that's a. I think that's such an interesting point. I mean, to your to your point, the you know principles of universal banking are about like get them in in a, in a product where I can cross sell and upsell them to you know a bunch of other ones to hopefully this bundle of stuff you own makes you profitable for us as an organization right so but with super low cost infrastructure and technology then actually the margin you can make on the stuff that's actually value add to customer um, is far higher isn't it so I mean do you, do you think though I mean there's this whole sort of concept of free banking in the UK is this what's sort of skewing us so heavily in terms of how people kind of think about these things because i mean banking isn't really free in the uk is it it's just the the costs are just not very evenly distributed amongst people who you know get really sort of into trouble sorry and, and you have a you have a point there yeah no i i i absolutely wanted to jump in on this because i think this is actually a huge opportunity for the challenges because you know over the last month or so we've seen obviously a lot of the incumbent banks returning to profit um after obviously having that slump during you know covid this year um but there's been a lot of talk about how potentially you know there's not going to be the same thing as a free bank account anymore in the uk banks are moving towards that and you know pairing that all up we're talking about how much the incumbent banks have in overheads costs that they need to pay that's actually a really prime opportunity for the challenger banks to if to, you know, go to profitability, make a bit of money, charge for their current accounts, especially since a lot of, um, you know, whether it's Starling or the Monzos or the N26s are actually accruing a huge user base at the moment, is to be able to offer, yes, it may come at a cost, but it will still could be substantially lower than if NatWest or Lloyd's or HSBC switched off the free accounts tomorrow. 
Mm. That is a huge opportunity and actually one that wouldn't be crazy for the consumer. But the free banking thing, I do think, like you said, David, I do think that's skewing because that isn't normal across all European markets, as we know. It's not in the US. It's very normal to pay even a small, small amount for your current account. So that does that, but without taking on the extra loans or all the traditional upselling of things that people don't need. Yeah. And it feels like actually with that, then people could be a bit more upfront about actually how they make money. Um, And that really, I think, is the biggest leap that we could kind of see in these things. Because uh, as I said earlier on, arguably the the business models of banking are as broken as as any of the technology that I've kind of come across. Because And and bizarrely, if you look at any industry that uh, really... uh, misses the the ability to evolve and is eradicated by something it's because they they generally can't evolve to the to the new scenario or let go of their business model i mean it's very much what we've seen in you know the the kodak example it wasn't that they were stupid it was the fact that they didn't want to give up being chemists because it was super cool uh so you know how do they how do people sort of move beyond that that piece but i mean to to sort of track back a little bit i mean Four or five years ago, every bank was standing up and saying, "Look, we're we're not a we're not a bank. We're a technology company, right?" Um, which uh, I, I vaguely remember laughing at quite a lot at the time, uh, and um, and it's proving not to really be true. Because Alex, to your point, if you're really super focused on creating a, a low cost uh, operating process for for your entire organization, your opex of you running Starling is you know, a department in a department of a big bank, isn't it? It's a fraction of a department of a department in a big bank. I mean, the, the big the big banks have tens of thousands of engineers. Um, we have hundreds. Yeah, which is which is crazy, isn't it? Because I, I mean, I, I often say this to people. It's like um, when a current account costs you £200 to run uh, a, a year, then actually how you make money from your customers turns into a uh, you know a necessity rather than a than a uh, you know the, than a nice to have and inevitably that's going to skew your ability to actually serve people correctly so i mean how you add value to people at a micro level when you're really focused on on that is completely different than well actually if you don't make you know 400 pounds for us this year then we need to kind of find you somebody else to bank you know that's um it's not a good way to a good relationship for me i do i do think what one of the one of the biggest innovations i think from the, the challenges just just on this theme is is that they've actually made banking in the uk anyway transparent in terms of um, so it's not actually sort of a, a product perspective or even doing things a lot cheaper, which we know are obviously uh, things they have done. But I think the as a consequence of that, um, you know, banking now is is really transparent. And, you know, across all the uh, in terms of the fees you're going to get charged in terms of how you're charged, why you're charged uh, and even, you know, Back to the earlier days of Monzo, they actually crowdsourced what that charging point should be. I remember them doing it for their, um, I don't know if it was the FX fee or the ATM fees abroad, I can't remember which one. So, um, but that that's, uh, and I've, you know, had a history in banks, unheard of uh, going back, you know, sort of uh, when I got out of the banks was in what, 2017, I think. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't have heard of that at all, you know, being that transparent. And now whenever we speak to banks, it's always the first thing, you know, transparency is really important, but they're actually following it through with, you know, this is why we're charging this and this is why we're charging that. And I think that's been an enormous influence of the challengers who have been able to do that because actually, you know, they're not hiding anything. Um, and I think that's really important. And culturally, that's really important. And, and uh, you know, something should to be, you know, celebrated for. 
Mm. I, I I do feel, and I, and I know we're um, we're sort of moving different topics forwards at different paces here. But Sorry, <laughs> that that does no no no. I think that, I think it's right because this is all fundamentally connected to one another. But it but it feels like that's why the media change has come a little bit because I, I kind of feel like it's a little bit like. To your point, Alex, it's like, aha, but you're making money like the, you're just a smaller version of the other banks, aren't you? And it's like, well, like, what were you expecting people to be, you know, and actually, what, where were you expecting this game to go to? Because this is financial services, like this is how financial services works. There is, uh, there is only so many different permutations of doing it. I think it's doing it in a much fairer way. Um but do you, I mean, Adam, do you think, I know we sort of looked at this a little bit, but do you think the uh, the the sort of premium current account route is a route to go to for that? Because I think the, uh, the benefit that that can bring, um, while people are still giving away uh, what people believe is free banking, I, I think is quite a hard sell. Uh, I, I think it's an interesting area to look. And I think it's even more interesting if you look at uh, not just offering a premium account, but offering uh, what I'd call quote unquote wealth. And when I, when I talk about wealth, I think this is a, a massive opportunity because it's not necessarily just we'll serve your banking needs for premium customers. It's actually how do we generate wealth for our customers? And if you look at, um, again, across the last few months and the wave and wave of millennials and, and generally most of the population have got into uh, stocks and, and, you know, sort of in, investments and whatever else, th- there's, there's a really, really interesting proposition there, which is sort of, I think, over the last year, um, reared its head in in more of a way than it ever had before. So I think the opportunity is there to do something really interesting in that space. Um, In terms of the concept of of free banking, I mean, HSBC said in their Q3 reports that they were thinking of starting to do, uh, you know, charge for current accounts, not all of them at the moment. Um, And I think the regulator will probably look at that and want a a fine line between what they will charge and what they won't charge for. Um, I think it's, um, I don't think they'll get away with charging for them all. I don't think they would. Because I just think you know, there's they've got responsibility for um, to, to serve a vulnerable part of society that just can't afford it, and I think that's um, that's the crux for me. Which is um, how does a bank sort of organise itself internally? You know, in five years' time, when they actually start charging for the majority of their current accounts, which I think will happen, um, and they start having tiers like premium and mass, and then vulnerable and vulnerables free. How do they sort themselves out internally to understand what they charge for and what they don't charge for, and what does that mean for their operating models? Uh, and I'm I'm betting a pretty penny that it's going to be much easier for the challengers who are already kind of doing that, but to double down on that than it will for the incumbents to have to switch their operating models to to, to serve that. Hmm. I mean, if financial services becomes a service, you know, that you're procuring, you're paying a monthly fee for a thing, you expect to get value from that thing. Uh, and that, I think, will be, to your point, Adam, probably the most difficult thing to turn uh, on is, you know, connection with customer, value being created, value being added. Because to your point, actually, I, I honestly don't think um, I don't think the you know the the revolution from a fintech perspective and all of the new banks coming through. I don't think is making uh, people want to like do more banking. Like nobody, uh, I don't think. Alex, correct me where I'm wrong here, but people don't just come and hang out in the the Starling app for like a good time. You know, it's like it's making financial services much more accessible. But it's not about uh, it's not about people be, becoming bankers. It's about the banks serving co- consumers better. And I think to your point, Adam, about creation of wealth, um, I honestly think that's where I mean players that I've you know seen like Snoop, I think are doing really interesting things. Where 
I mean, I, I, we trust algorithms now to drive cars and, you know, do surgery, but, um, you know, actually getting them to make better decisions for me about what broadband I should be on to save me like, you know, 80 pounds a month or so, uh, 80 pounds a year or something like that's where value can really be created and added, can't it? And I think the thing about premium and subscription accounts is it's actually quite hard to make money from them because they're expensive to provide and you've got to really provide value for the customer. If you're charging, I don't know, £5 a month, that's £60 a year. If it's more than that, you know, the, the annual fee, has you have to provide that much value for the customer. And at the same time, you are going to have to go out and to procure all those things that you're offering um, them and, and and still make a profit on it. So it's... Um, I think with all of those things, unless you are unless you are creating real value for the customer, um, that's not going to it's not going to work long term because because people will will just give up. They'll they'll see it's not they're not getting their money back. They're not getting the the value out of yeah. it. Yeah, I mean the the, the Monzo uh, the latest Monzo incarnation of this is Monzo Premium. I think it's called. Yeah, um, to Monzo Premium, it's really interesting if you read the website in terms of they say. On average per year, you can save. I'm not going to pretend that I've memorized the number, but I think it's north of £200 per year if you take out uh, their premium product versus if you procured all their, you know, all the individual parts separately uh, that 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 compromise that product um, uh, or compose that product. But I, from my perspective, I'm looking at actually what they're offering and I'm asking myself whether that's valuable or not. So, all right, you might get a £200 saving and they've might have been able to procure that at a much um, uh, better cost economics because of the you know the distribution and the amount of customers they've got. But actually, you know what I'm looking at is it's something that I want, and I think that's um, that's interesting. You know, can you actually create an account which costs money to give a customer real value versus what's just easily obtainable on the market? Um, and I think that's going to be an interesting space to look at, look at for the next few years. I was just thinking like a lot of it comes down to obviously the position in the marketing of it as well, right? Because you can offer some something for someone that they do actually need, but it really comes down to the messaging of how that's positioned. So for example, it's the whole marshmallow test, right? You can still go, I'm gonna give you this, it's gonna and if you wait, you can have two. It's it's kind of similar. If you if you package something up and say to someone that it does cost a certain amount, but we are going to take away all the headache about having to worry about is going to cost you every time you use your ATM abroad or something and package it up that way. There will be some people out there in that position that would be like, oh, I like to know that each month I'm only paying this and I don't have to worry about anything else. But some people don't. People like the pay-as-you-go method, which enables them to, it's the same thing, even if they don't particularly save money, sometimes it really does come down to that. It's the transparency, of course, and which way people want to pay. And so that really can make that difference. And the added value may not be something like you're paying for something so radically different. It's what does it make people's lives easier? When people do, when people go for a service, some people like that monthly. Some people like, oh, do pay as you go because each month I'm all over the place. Or some people just like, paying the money so things are made easier for them. I think that kind of tailored approach and, again, that messaging will be really important when it comes to moving forward with it because value means different things to different people. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, delivery premium when I was in London all the time, like four pounds for delivery every time, I'm not having any of that. So like the 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 value that it was that that was a benefit to me. Or, or even um, you know, people are getting used to subscriptions with Spotify and various different things that they they do, but I, but I do think it comes down to it. it's like the the subscription has to have real value to the end consumer as you, as you as you say to else it it's something that uh, it feels a little bit like those games that you go to at the fair where it's like i know that rubber cost you 5p and you're like you've you've and it was five pound a throw to try and win that thing and i feel happy that i've won it but it's probably not worth the the value of the the exchange here but uh, adam you got a you got a point on that yeah i was i was just going to mention i think what's also interesting is that uh, the challenges competitors now are starting to include sort of open banking based uh, products and services so you're talking about not fca regulated well, some of them are FCA regulated, some of them are, are regulated under the PSR, and some of them are sort of jumping as agents on, on other sort of underlying platforms. Um, and what that means is that they can offer more uh, in terms of they've got more scope to offer different types of products um, and probably do uh, potentially as good as or a better job of it from a lower cost base because obviously they're, they're not running an underlying account, et cetera. Actually, better job of it. Let's, let's extract that. Let's just say they're doing it from a, from a lower cost base, even than, the, even than the, the challenger banks. So, you know, for I don't see, for instance, a lot of new uh, banks or a lot of new consortiums looking to become licensed in the UK to do what Monzo and Starling have done, which is go the PCA current account route first i think if you're going to do that now open banking uh, and the rails means that it's much easier to become a snoop and actually concentrate on your algorithms and concentrate on the value-added services and interestingly enough that means that the challenger banks the ones who are licensed are going to now have to not only face up against the incumbent banks but also against these challenges which which is really interesting because then it you you look at what the niche is of a challenger bank and it's actually to do banking services at a lower cost so how can you therefore amalgamate banking services into that package to count deal if you like and i uh, again like does that mean you're getting a better uh, interest rate on some loans does that mean you're getting better savings rates etc and how far can you push the fca and the pra to sort of make concessions on that um really interested to see where that goes in the future will be uh, probably a lot of the open banking offerings at the moment are still relatively uh, uh re- re- relatively uh, young yeah i mean it's it's interesting where where does this uh, and and i know uh, uh uh, producer Olivia is going to be like, dude, you got to wrap up soon. So I'm going to keep going with this until she really shuts me down at this stage. But, um, but, but in terms of the, where does this leave the big incumbent banks? But, uh, and just sort of change, changing the the conversation slightly because actually, if the the challenges, you know, stalling, you're on the route to to profitability, um, and actually not just profitability in the core of what you're doing, but all of the other auxiliary opportunities that come as you get more and more and more customer base, right? So so that's a, a huge opportunity in itself. Um, surely this is like the, the last sort of uh, stomping grounds of why uh, big banks say challenger banks won't catch on and it'll never take off. Um, so, so Alex, do you, do you think the the sort of excuses of why the big banks can't really uh, sort of compete in this space are, are just sort of eroding? No, I th- I think the big banks are doomed. I think you just look at the job cuts they're making. Just look at their branch networks. Just look at their um, bureaucracy and their layers and layers of management. They can't compete long term. Yeah. 
I think it's going to be fascinating. I think the their ability to respond to the change in the market is uh, is very much uh, ebbing away as an opportunity, isn't it? So uh, I think that's probably a, a pretty exciting place to leave this if, uh, if we all I, I believe that the, the big banks... I don't want to be crass, but the marketing strap line from this, I mean, we could just extract that and say big banks are doomed from Starling. But, you know, of course we won't. But, you know. Please do. Please do. But listen, the way the way they the way they meet us head on is by investing in tech, and that's just adding to their costs. It's not taking away their costs. They can only compete by doing more of the thing that's holding them back. It is, yeah, it is a slightly sort of perverse sort of uh, spider's web that they find themselves in from a technological perspective. But uh, there are ways to get out of that, but it ain't easy. And uh, as I, I think I said on social a, a couple of days ago, the, sadly, the, the first step in that is admitting that there's a problem, which uh, many, uh, many don't really want to. So uh, on that note, look, we could go on for this for, for hours and hours, I think, in terms of where we are. And, it, and I, I personally, I think if we sort of stand back far enough from this, I think this is, this is a debate about where we are in the cycle when it comes to uh, challenger banks and actually the the impact that they are having, not just on the big incumbent banks, but the consumers much more broadly than that. Um, I think, uh, Liana, to your point, actually, we're in a situation where the 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 media is so interested in challengers because they are so interesting and they are actually having such a big impact on in the industry in terms of where we're going. So on that note, I think in terms of the developments, definitely, I reckon, Look, lockdown three, we'll all get back together again. We'll have this conversation again and see what, see how far this has progressed. But what I fully expect by then is the challenges will have a lot more customers as well, which is great. Uh, on that note, guys, we really should get, get going. Thank you so much for joining the Zoe. Uh, where can people find out about all of you guys? So, Mr. Davies, where can people find out a little bit more about you and the work you're doing? Uh, well, obviously, 11fs.com and AdamD8 on Twitter. And I'm on LinkedIn. And yeah, that's it. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Diana, where can people find out more about you? Um, so you can go to the Yahoo Finance UK website on uk.finance.yahoo.com or I'm on Twitter at Liana Brinded or you can find me on LinkedIn. Very good. Alex? Uh, you'll find me uh, on Twitter at Freeney. Um, Starlingbank.com is our website. Uh, check us out. Very good. As for me, you can find me on at David Breer over on Twitter and over on LinkedIn as well. Thank you for listening this week. If you did like what you heard, then subscribe to this podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review over on iTunes. We super duper appreciate those reviews. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on pretty much every social media channel at this stage, uh, or just drop us in a good old fashioned email at podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much for joining everybody. Goodbye.